Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, archaeology. It's STEM for those of us who live stream turtles to relax. Mm. I feel relaxed just saying it. What's going on? What's new? By the time this uh, episode comes out, this will already have been old news because it technically came out in 2019. But I found a really funny uh, Twitter thread uh-huh. where Dr. Esther Odakunle asks, what is the weirdest thing you've done in the name of science? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and a bunch of scientists responded, like at EB, Petrov said, played my violin on the edge of a moving radio telescope. Wow. Um, and <laughs> at uh, Parenting and Stuff said, watched time-lapse videos of opossums to see if they had mated while I wasn't there. Which is very fun. <laughs> it's just a, a lot of fun. Uh, little weird things scientists have done. And I guess you don't really think about it, but all that gross stuff. Like somebody had to collect beluga snot. Oh, if you need to study beluga snot, you know, somebody's got to collect it. It doesn't just collect itself. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm trying to think of the grossest thing I've ever had to do at work. You know what I think is the grossest thing I've ever had to do at work, which Hmm. if you're just like watching a movie or a TV show, it might not seem that way to you is eat in a scene and having to like eat that food take after take after take, hour after hour. Yes, yes. People don't necessarily understand that when we're eating that food, it's not gross in the fact that nobody purposely tried to make it bad. Yes. But if you can just imagine food that's been sitting on a table for four hours and was prepared not for taste but for function, yep, that's what it is. And, okay, here's the other thing you have to learn as an actor. If on the first setup of the scene you eat a bunch of it because you're actually hungry at that point then to match your continuity you have to continue to eat that volume of the food and take after take rookie mistake Uh, i learned that lesson with kettle corn on an episode of community where it was just so good that i was eating like handfuls of it in the first couple of days and then by the end of it i don't know that i've ever had kettle corn again oh god i gotta tell you that's a rookie mistake i can't believe juilliard didn't prepare you (laughs) They didn't prepare me for a lot. Um, okay. <laughs> cutting the floor. Just cutting the floor. Okay. What has been new with you? What have you been up to? 
I discovered that scientists are finding more and more animals that glow under UV light. Yeah. So the current list is, and I'm sure it'll keep expanding because I think it's kind of a new area, but platypuses, opossums, three species of North American flying squirrel, Tasmanian devils, wombats, and now one of the newer discoveries seems to be spring hares. And they glow under black light, different (laughs) colors. But yeah, there's, I'll send you the article. I'm looking at a picture from the article in the New York Times, and this spring hair glows pink under uh, UV light. And so they're trying to figure out why it is that they do this, and they're not exactly sure. So it's all hypotheses at this point. But they think maybe it has to do with something about, like, being visible in low light or different light or animals' eyes can see color waves that we as humans can't. But the whole thing is pretty extraordinary. And so I guess now, you know, scientists are going around waving black lights on animals to see if there's like, who else? Who else? Who else glows? To see how these animals would react at a rave. Exactly. Um, No, it's interesting because I was thinking when you said UV light, I was like, well, the sun produces UV light and the atmosphere, I know the atmosphere filters out quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but it would make sense that um, it would have to do with what the animals can see and that they'd be able to see the glow. Maybe they use it to identify each other, you know, like if you've ever played Breath of the Wild, the stasis rune, when you turn it on, it makes things glow yellow, like anything Mm. that's viable that you can either take or fight. So I feel like it's like that for the animals. Three people understood that. (laughs) Three people understood that. I I didn't know what you were talking about, but I got the larger point. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there's a whole, seems like a whole subsection for the New York Times that said things in nature that glow. So I think I want to read this whole list. Because, you know, certainly fireflies, that's visible to the human eye. But it just feels like there might be this whole other, you know, world going on right in front of us that we just can't see. So we got a really great STEM fact from my friend, writer, actor, director, Sarah Ramos. Uh, Here it is. Hey, I'm Sarah Ramos, and one of my favorite STEM facts is that the smallest living mammal is the Etruscan shrew. It weighs 0.063 ounces on average. And to me, it kind of looks like a tiny mouse with an elongated snout. I really want to meet one now. I just looked up a picture of it, and it's so cute. I hope it's my friend one day. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. Listen, for story time this week, we have got a story about a woman whose work was central in helping us understand the structure of our DNA. But first, we talk with science journalist Annalie Newitz. They've got a book that I think takes a really unique look at archaeology. It explores how cities rise, how the design and structure of a place is shaped by our values, and how cities are ultimately abandoned. The book is called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. It uses archaeology to explore our past, but the circumstances that made people abandon the places are really relatable today. All right. I think this is a terrific episode. So let's get started with our interview with Annalie Newitz. What can design or architecture of a place tell you about how people lived? 
Yeah, that's a super great question. And it's, of course, a question that archaeologists are wondering about all the time when they're looking at ancient cities. Um, And so one of the things that archaeologists will think about is, what are the public spaces like in the city? Um, Because Mm -hmm. the public spaces tell you a lot about social structures. So, for example, a city where the main public space is dominated by a giant ziggurat um, and all of the people's houses are made of crappy materials, but the ziggurat is made of, like, marble. It doesn't have to be marble, but something that's quite fancy and that required a lot of human labor to build. That tells you that, you know, this might be a very hierarchical civilization. This is a civilization that values having a few people at the top and having a lot of people doing a lot of labor to make the thing that that person stands on. And sorry to interrupt, but will you just let our listeners and me know what a ziggurat is? (laughs) A ziggurat is um, one of those stepped pyramids that you see a lot in ancient cities like the city of Ur. You also see it in Mayan architecture. So it's it's Mm. a pyramid, but it has steps going up to the top. So it's kind of built like uh, a layer cake where each layer gets smaller and smaller until you get to the tippy top. Um, and at the nice. tippy top, you have some dude telling you what to do. <laughs> 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 um, a lot of the time. So um, just to, to finish that thought, like the other thing you can, you know, ask yourself about public space is, you know, what do we put in those public spaces? Like either, you know, so sometimes we put a monument to power, like a ziggurat. Sometimes we put banks and Um, shopping malls, you know, in a Mm -hmm. big public spot downtown. Um, That tells you a little bit about what the civilization values if the center of town is a marketplace. Um, In some places, people put churches at the center of town and in the public square. And then in other places, you see cities where public space is kind of um, democratically allocated all over. And we see cities where there's lots of little parks, there's lots of public spots, there's no real built up downtown with lots of monuments to capitalism or to whatever your thing is that you worship. Um, And so that suggests a different kind of social organization. And so those are the kinds of really macro questions that you can ask. And of course, you know, the beauty part about archaeology, or maybe the sad part is you could be completely wrong. But um, generally, I think, you know, 90% of the time you can make an educated guess that's pretty accurate. I just want to drill down a little bit into basics. Mm-hmm. How is it that you researched the archaeological sites in your book? What tools or resources did you use? Yeah, so um, it was difficult. It took me about seven years. Um, wow. The book is focused on four cities, and I, I visited all of them, um, in one case a couple of times. And I would go at times when archaeologists were doing field work there so that I could you know, try to crash the archaeology party a little bit um, with a lot of prearrangement. I should say archaeologists do not appreciate if you just stroll into a site. So I would obviously (laughs) talk to them first. I often had to get many, many, many layers of permission um, from the, uh, the park itself. Like at Pompeii, for example, it's a very, you know, it's a site that lots of people go to and a lot of people want to steal stuff from. So they're very careful. And it, it took me seven years because um, archaeologists tend to work in the summer um, mm-hmm. and, you know, my funds were not infinite. And so I had to kind of plan each summer around a city. Um, and so I started with uh, Çatalhöyük, which is uh, an ancient city in central Turkey uh, that was a really happening place about 9,000 years ago. 
Um, and then I went to uh, Angkor, which is in today's Cambodia, but it was once at the heart of a massive, massive empire, the Khmer Empire. And um, then Pompeii, which most folks know where that is and know why it was uh, <laughs> abandoned. Um, and then Cahokia, which is an indigenous city uh, outside St. Louis. It's in East St. sort of in East St. Louis in a, a city called Collinsville. So yeah, it was a lot of trudging around. It was very hot. Archaeologists work in the summer, used a lot of sunblock, and I got really dirty, which I love. So especially at <laughs> Cahokia is super muddy, and I just, I love any excuse to just, like, be in the mud. It was uh, it was an, an incredibly fun journey um, and, and very dirty. Mm-hmm. Did you ever want to be an archaeologist? I think probably I did. I'm sorry that I always come back to this, but I think my mom working at the Natural History Museum when I was really little maybe planted that idea in my brain. I think I was thinking more of like uh, dinosaur digs, but this book was fascinating and it has made me want to study cities more. How about you? I used to work. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this. I used to work in a museum and we had a, a little archaeology dig that the kids could do where they could find little broken pieces of pot and um, little oil lamps and um, cuneiform tablets. There's a lot of work reburying those things after (laughs) every archaeology dig. Uh, And so, no, 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 no. Never wanted to do that. I love one of the opening questions in your book, How Do You Lose a City? Why did you decide to start your book by dissecting that idea? I mean, we've all heard of lost cities, the legends of different lost cities, and it's kind of a romantic trope, or maybe it's mm-hmm. a, a fantasy trope. You know, it's it's something that um, as a nerd, you know, I grew up thinking a lot about like, well, what if I get to, you know, visit Krakatoa one day or, or whatever. Um, but the fact is that when you look at the archaeological record and you actually start talking to people who study ancient cities including ones that have been abandoned and ones that have been, like, labeled lost cities, um, they aren't really lost. Like, there's, in in fantasy stories, you know, we see cities that are literally, like, hidden behind um, impassable mountains, or they're like Mm -hmm. Wakanda, like, they're hidden under a techno bubble that, like, literally makes them invisible. Um, But that doesn't happen in real life. What happens in real life is that you know, cities do get abandoned. Um, But in every case that I looked at, and I looked at quite a bit, um, the cities, when they were quote-unquote discovered, um, were not lost. Like, the people who lived nearby knew they were there. Um, Mm -hmm. They'd seen the crumbling temples. They'd, um, in the case of Çatalhöyük, the Turkish city that I looked at, um, the city itself was kind of covered over in a layer of dust and dirt, so it looked like a mound. But the farmers around, when they would plow, they were always finding, like, ancient artifacts from the city. They would find figurines. They'd find, um, you know, ceramic bowls. And so they knew. They knew there was something really major there. And so when Western archaeologists came and were like, hey, you know, you know any priceless treasures around here? Um, the which is probably kind of literally what they said. Um, and uh, you know, this is old, more old-fashioned archaeology. And uh, and people were like, yeah, actually, these two hills over there, like, there's a bunch of stuff there. You know, maybe check that out. And it was the same thing 
um, at Angkor, which is another sort of famous lost city, and it's always being described as this, you know, incredible gem that was hidden in the jungle, and um, and then Europeans came and and discovered it in the jungle. But people were living there when the Europeans, quote unquote, discovered it, so it was not ever really lost. But I was so I was just really interested in why we keep believing in the myth of lost cities, like even though in reality what we have are abandoned cities. Mm. Um, And I think the answer to that is really complicated, and it's a political answer. And in many cases, it has to do with the fact that archaeology is really a very Western pursuit. Uh, It comes out of Europe and, and, uh, you know, white settlers in the Americas. And oftentimes you might notice that the cities that are lost always just so happen to belong to colonized groups. So it's either indigenous cities that have been lost. Um, In the case of Angkor, it was in Southeast Asia, which was, um, you know, besieged by colonizers um, over and over again. And it kind of became an excuse to say, well, you know, the people who whose city this is, they're not really taking care of it. They, They don't really know how to take care of it. So it's better that we from the British Museum or the Smithsonian come in and just sort of take charge of everything. And so it becomes a myth of like a, of colonizers. But like I said, at the same time, it's also a romantic myth, right? It's a myth of like going to a place that no one has ever seen before and that's wondrous and, and unknown. So it has a dark side and it has a light side, that myth. <laughs> uh, when you talk about that, it reminds me a lot of I'm from Detroit, Mm-hmm. Um, very proudly from Detroit. And uh, I still hear that now when people are like, you know, we can go in and we can revitalize Detroit. We can, there's a lot of space there. You know, it would be great for our company. Mm-hmm. It's so frustrating. Yeah, I think Detroit is an excellent example of that kind of language being used in the modern day, where it's like, yeah, what we need is to take this place um, that has a huge immigrant population that has tons of African-Americans, but we're, you know, White settler types can come in and, and fix it all up. Or just rich people can come in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what urban history teaches us is that, um, you know, the city is really belongs to its workers. And so it's really the people who live in the city who need to be lifted up to make their own city the way they want it to look. Very true. Okay. Well, we wanted to go through some of the cities in the book. Mm-hmm. Um because you talk about four ancient metropolitan cities. And let's start with the one that people are probably the most familiar with, which is Pompeii in southern Italy. Yes. So how is Pompeii distinct from the other cities in your book? Well, for one thing, um, Pompeii was abandoned really quickly because Mm -hmm. uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 CE. And it covered the city in about 20 feet of hot ash pretty quickly. So it's different in that sense, in that we know exactly why the city was abandoned. Um, And it also teaches us a little bit about the aftermath of urban abandonment um, in a way Hmm. that the other cities don't, because we have written records of what happened, um, which is that the Roman emperor actually engaged in a pretty extensive disaster relief program and helped relocate a lot of the refugees from the city. Um, I think 
in our fantasy versions in the in the documentary um, that Kit Harrington starred in called Pompeii, um, <laughs> the uh, you know in movies you know it's depicted as like everybody died or like one person got out or something, um, but actually only about ten percent of the city perished um, in the eruption because it had been um, the mountain had been erupting for a while. Uh, the sky had gone black. Like, people knew it was bad to stay in mm. that city. Um, so a lot of people fled and got out in time, which meant that it was a it was much more of a refugee problem than a kind of mass death problem. So, yeah, it's really interesting to look at Pompeii as an example of ancient disaster relief and um, and also as an example of a city that people didn't really want to abandon. Like, they were forced mm-hmm. to abandon it because of terrible circumstances. So that's... All of the other city, uh, the other three cities in the book, um, people seem to have abandoned them more or less willingly. So, as you and, and tell me if my reading of your book was incorrect, but uh, Pompeii was kind of a resort town that had a lot of bars, <laughs> had a lot of like social life going on, and so it was a destination. Maybe it was we could think of it as like a vacation town for people. Absolutely, it was. And um, it was a beach town. And um, people who lived in Rome, like the wealthy elite in Rome, a lot of them had vacation houses there. Um, The really fancy vacation houses were kind of a little bit outside the city because like one doesn't want to be right on the road, dear. Um, And so, uh, but also um, people came in to watch gladiator uh, matches. The city had... uh, so many, like the city had about 10,000 people living there and it had about a hundred bars. Um, so, and there's probably more that are going to be discovered um, because it's still being excavated. So it gives you a sense of like, yeah, it was, you know, it was a beach town, you know, it was a place that you went uh, to hook up, to get drunk, to have tasty food. They had delicious food. They were quite famous for having um, incredible restaurants and um, and that was uh, what people were doing, you know, when when uh, when the volcano went off. It was really interesting reading their book and hearing them talk about Pompeii, especially in the context of having interviewed Dr. Iancovino mm-hmm. and learning about volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe people, even if they wanted to come back, they couldn't have because of, mm. you know, the gases and how long it took to cool. It just really changes the way I think about Pompeii. Yes. And that was something else in their book about how long it was just like so hot there mm-hmm. after the eruption, how long it took for the site to cool. And that, yeah, they couldn't go back even if they wanted to. OK, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're back. Let's talk a little bit about Cahokia. Mm-hmm. Um, so that actually existed within what's now the United States. Uh, it was an enormous city. Can you describe its size and its scale? Yeah. So Cahokia is in um, east, it's near East St. Louis. So um, if you're in that area, you can go visit it now. It's a beautiful UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, about 30,000 people likely lived there at its height. Um, and it was a town that had seasonal festivals that attracted people from all up and down the Mississippi River because it's right where the Mississippi and the Missouri River split. So it's kind of a um, perfect location. Um, and, 
you know, a thousand years ago, when people came to town to party, presumably the population boomed to much, much bigger than 30,000. And people would Hmm. stay and camp out and have barbecues and do all kinds of fun stuff. Um, One of the ways that we recognize the city today, because we don't have remains of houses or castles or anything like that, but uh, the residents built massive earthen pyramids. And at the center of town, um, there is this huge, huge earthen pyramid that has two steps to it. It's flat on top, and then it has another part that's a little bit lower that's flat Um, And to give you an idea of how big it is, it's about the size, its footprint is about the size of the Great Pyramid at Giza. So it's huge. Wow. Um, And it's made entirely of packed earth that people would have dug up, carried in baskets, dumped out and packed down like with their hands or their feet and to press it together. And the city has dozens and dozens of smaller mounds that are kind of like that. So you can see when... um, and the city was abandoned long before white settlers came. So when white settlers did arrive in the area, they could see this massive area that was full of these mounds and swales and um, elevated walkways and um, artificial pools. And it would have been immediately obvious to them that was built by humans. Um, although, of course, people have since then suggested it was aliens, but um, it was definitely humans. <laughs> had this, so my wife loves the just she loves that show ancient aliens and i'm like you know it's just amazing how often they're like nah aliens must have done this and i'm like yeah couldn't okay. have been indigenous people building an amazing city no nope. couldn't have possibly been <laughs> probably aliens. definitely aliens so um so the city is quite big it's a big sprawling city Um, that had lots of farmland in it. And one of the secrets of Cahokia's success was that they were very sophisticated farmers who um, just planted tons and tons of crops, a lot of crops that we don't eat anymore, uh, but that they thought were super tasty. Um, And it stretched actually all the way over into St. Louis. And there was another big, big mound in St. Louis that was uh, unfortunately torn down in the 19th century to make way for the railroad. But this would have been to anyone visiting a thousand years ago, it would have been like coming to like Paris or New York. Um, and indeed the size of the city at the time was rivaled the size of Paris. So it was, it was the Paris of the plains, you know? Um, so interestingly, what seems to make this city distinct in your book was that it was not built to last. So can you talk about the, what, was the intention behind the city, the maybe the philosophical origins of building a city that's not meant to last? Yeah, that's um, a big part of what's kind of a mystery about the city. The reason why a lot of um, anthropologists and archaeologists believe that the city was sort of planned to do this, planned to kind of grow big and then scatter apart again, um, is because there are a lot of rituals um, in the city that suggest that people viewed houses and cities and neighborhoods as having a lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, and one example of that of that ritual is called closing up house. And um, what we can see from digging through those layers of, of dirt and soil and clay is that when people would build a house, um, you know, they would start with um, big wooden poles at the corners, which we can usually see because they leave these big, deep impressions in the ground. And then they would, you know, kind of build walls around that. And then when they were done using the house, they would pull up all of that wood. 
they would put um, like ceremonial items inside the post holes. So sometimes it would be like shells or like mica, which is really sparkly, um, or like red clay, something that was symbolic. And then they would put a pile of stuff in the middle of the floor. Um, Usually we, I mean, we assume it was stuff from the people who lived there. You know, it would be like baskets. Sometimes it would be food offerings. Sometimes it would be uh, projectile points. Um, Sometimes it would just be trash, which is kind of interesting. Um, And then they would burn it. So they would burn the floor. They would burn these remains. And we see the results of that because we see these burned impressions in the floor. And when you dig down, it's incredible. Like people can uncover like a burned impression of a basket and you can actually wow. see the weave of the basket wow. from this. It's it's amazing. And then they would cover that over with a layer of clay for that for the new floor. And so it seems like for the folks who lived at Cahokia, um, you know, houses were intended to kind of be born, have a lifespan, and then be cleared away, and a new one would be put in place. And we also see that same ritual uh, being used in one case for an entire neighborhood, um, a neighborhood that was seemingly built to be burned in effigy. So Mm. in other words, they built a kind of little mini neighborhood with tiny houses that were about the size of outhouses, like clearly not to be lived in. They filled them with offerings and they burned the whole thing. Um, And it seems like, again, this was some kind of ritual. Maybe it meant a a social transformation. Maybe maybe it was an offering. Um, We don't know, but there's a lot of um, evidence from these kinds of rituals. And then also from, you know, the oral traditions of lots of indigenous folks whose, um, you know, heritage, their distant heritage probably comes from the Mississippian people who lived at Cahokia, that, that there is this idea of living temporarily upon the land, that, that, mm-hmm. that um, habitations are intended to be impermanent um, and that they shouldn't, we shouldn't get attached to a specific place. Um, what really matters is the ideas that bring people together. I just had a memory. I get so attached to things that I cried when my mom bought new living room furniture when I was a child. I wrote in my diary, she's trying to ruin my life. She got a new couch. So I think this was an important interview for me Mm. to reframe the way I think about my immediate surroundings, the city I live in, just like seeing cities within this greater time continuum, I think is a good lesson for me. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about Angkor. Yeah. Um, So I think a lot of people have the assumption that people kind of migrate towards resources where they can have, you know, stable food, clean water. And if we look at a city like Angkor in Cambodia, uh, it seems like that city being built was really kind of a game changer. Can you talk about how important water was to that city? Yeah, it was a game changer. I mean, it's a, it's built in a place where two monsoon systems kind of meet. And so it gets really dry during the dry season and really wet during the wet season. And so why would you build a city there, right? It just sounds crazy. <laughs> and yet, because um, the Khmer people who were framing the city already had incredible knowledge of water engineering. They were able to build a city around reservoirs and canals that could 
maintain a good water supply for people during the dry season. And so a big part of that LIDAR project uh, that was so exciting was that we got to see in much greater detail how these huge reservoirs that are still in the center of the city today, how they connected up with smaller reservoirs and smaller canal systems. So it's really a marvel of water engineering. And when you visit Angkor, which I urge folks to do, um, they've reconstructed two of the great big um, reservoirs at the heart of the city next to the palaces, um, which are called the East and West Barai. And they're, you know, many kilometers long. Um, They look like giant lakes and uh, you can take boats out on them and, and spend the day, you know, basically boating around. So, not only is the architecture beautiful and, and famous for how advanced and, and just incredible it is, it's really, it's the water engineering that makes it cool. And they connected those canals up with other cities as well to use for transit, to bring rocks into the city, to build their incredible uh, palaces. So yeah, it was a water city. It was fantastic. So another thing that you talked about in the book that might have drawn people to the city were parades, festivals. Like, can you talk about the importance of those sorts of things in people's lives? Why would that draw someone to a city? Yeah, this is something that was super interesting to me because when I was interviewing archaeologists about Angkor, I kept saying, well, you know, didn't people come to town to like buy cool stuff or like, you know, trade or like get rich? Because I have this very American mindset where it's like you go to a city to get a job. Um, And really, uh, Miriam Stark, who's one of the uh, archaeologists I talk to about this a lot, and she's written about this a lot. She said that really all of the evidence, um, written evidence from people who live there, but also from people who visited, uh, was that people came because they had great parties. Um, (laughs) They had enormous wealth. Um, Remember, this is a city of almost a million people at the heart of a massive empire that covers huge parts of Southeast Asia, which is this very culturally rich area um, and, and also rich in resources. And so when they threw a party, it was like a giant parade. It would last for days. People would have incredible ceremonies on the water, which were just beautiful. Um, And uh, kings and other aristocracy from all around would come to pay homage to the king because the, the system of rule that they had was a system of kind of debt and gifts. And so if you didn't come and bring your gift to the king a.k.a. your taxes to the king, um, that wasn't good. (laughs) So some of this was enforced partying. um, But for regular people, it would have just been awesome, you know, if you were there just to see the sights. And so, yeah, it seems like a lot of the population of Angkor came for the party and then stayed um, Mm -hmm. in a a lot of cases. And I think that was true at Cahokia, too, which was another party city. And it really seems like, in general, throughout my research, that parties were a major factor in drawing people to cities. You know, it wasn't Mm. about getting rich. It wasn't about trading for a cool, a better stone tool. It was like, wow, they have great barbecue here and they really know how to dance. And (laughs) that's really fun. And I made a friend and now I want to stay here. And and that kind of um, brings me to another really important point about cities, which is that cities throughout time have been built by immigrants, And um, one way to attract immigrants is with these incredible uh, sumptuous parties and festivals. And 
Um, you know, anyone, anytime someone tries to tell you like, no, 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 this city built by real Americans or whatever the heck, right? Nope. City building throughout throughout history is really done almost exclusively by people who've moved to the city from somewhere else, sometimes from very, very far away. Parties are why I picked the college I went to. So I feel, <laughs> I feel great. <laughs> it's okay, a no. it's a legit reason though. It's a good it it's a good reason to pick a place because it's about the social life of the place. Are there any common patterns and themes that you found among these cities? Yeah. You know, one theme that we talked about a lot was that, you know, people are drawn to cities to party. Um <laughs> and then when you look at the pattern of abandonment, um, what we see again and again is that cities are abandoned when they are experiencing the double whammy of environmental problems and political instability. So you can deal with environmental problems if you have a stable government. Um, this mm. We see this again and again. Some of these cities went through really rough times, like with droughts and floods, and they stayed there because they had seemingly a well-organized government. But once the government is unstable and the kings are arguing and nobody really knows what to do, if you're hit with a flood, that's it. People... You know, the city doesn't get repaired. Uh, mm. People start leaving and that abandonment snowballs. So um, that's that's a really big pattern is that once you see those two things happening at once, mm-hmm. you have to start worrying about urban abandonment. Hello, 2021. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> OK. Um, have people been using your book to think about our relationship with the cities that we live in today? Yeah. No, I've heard some people respond to the book as being really hopeful Um, Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, this makes me feel better that, like, even though there's problems in my city, we could survive. And then other people are like, oh, this just proves that everything is doomed. (laughs) (laughs) um, Because part of the point of the book is that, you know, yeah, cities do get abandoned for all kinds of reasons, you know, political and environmental and and other reasons, um, like giant volcanoes going off. Here in the United States, we like to pretend like our cities will last forever. It's just not really how cities work, you know, like nobody lives forever and cities don't really live forever either. And, you know, cities, cities aren't meant to last. They're meant to have a a cool life with lots of parties um, and, you know, good social movements. And then, you know, they, they kind of fade away and that's okay. You're making me feel like I need to just completely change my life philosophy, which is cool. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for this interview. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Those were fantastic questions, y'all. Okay, let's take one last break, and then it is story time. We'll be right back. And we're back. It's story time. Story time. (laughs) Okay. This is the story of Rosalind Franklin, a woman who made many contributions to the world of science, but is perhaps best known for helping to discover the very structure of our DNA. Rosalind was born in 1920 in England, and even from a young age, she loved science and education. A relative described her saying, Rosalind is alarmingly clever. She spends all her time doing arithmetic for pleasure and invariably gets her sums right. Rosalind studied physical chemistry at Cambridge. 
While doing research for this story, I found different accounts about how supportive her family was of studying advanced science. But in general, her father seemed to think it was too hard for a woman to pursue a career as a scientist. If that wasn't hard enough, while Rosalind was getting her degree, World War II was happening. So she graduated during the war in 1941 and the next year pivoted to studying the chemistry of carbon and coal for the war effort. After the war ended, Rosalind began looking for jobs. She described herself as, quote, a physical chemist who knows very little physical chemistry, but quite a lot about the holes in coal. Eventually, she found a gig as a researcher for a scientist in Paris studying X-ray crystallography of amorphous substances. Now, that's a big phrase, so let's break it down. Okay. In general, there are different kinds of X-rays. But in this context, X-ray is electromagnetic radiation that shines through objects. When something is too dense for the radiation to pass through, it reflects back in the shape of the item onto photographic film that captures the X-ray image. And crystallography is the study of crystals that shows the arrangements of their atoms and bonds. So X-ray crystallography is shining that X-ray beam through a crystal. If it is shined through under the right conditions, the beam should form a repeating pattern called a diffraction pattern. That tells you a lot about the structure of the item. Now, normally, this method was mainly used on crystals because, well, they're shaped like crystals, a shape with really predictable diffraction patterns. But Rosalind was learning to study amorphous items that didn't have a predictable crystalline shape. And it was this work that led her to important discoveries for the coal industry. And listen, we know that coal is not great for the environment. We are not advocating for it. But Rosalind's work was being used to change entire industries. That's pretty huge. Rosalind moved on to a fellowship at King's College. Originally, she was supposed to research proteins and lipids, but she was reassigned to take over research of DNA. Her reassignment didn't sit well with her colleagues, some of whom were already studying DNA and didn't like Rosalind's assertive attitude. She was described as having a, quote, cool air of superiority, which probably meant she was a woman who knew what she was talking about and wanted to be treated that way. When Rosalind began working with DNA, scientists already knew our genetic code was contained in these four building blocks, A, C, G, and T, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thionine. But how was all this important info carried by such a limited number of compounds? And how did all this information fit into our tiny cell nucleus? The structure of DNA was still a mystery. Using her skills in X-ray diffraction and chemistry, she began to study the structure of DNA, forming the DNA into crystals, then shining the X-ray beam through them and capturing the image on photofilm. And in May 1952, her research assistant, working under Rosalind's guidance, took a photo called Photo 51. We know it sounds like Area 51, but this is actually cooler. (laughs) 
<laughs> so photo 51 is a black and white image. It looks like a kind of blurry gray circle with a kind of blurry black circle inside of it with a kind of blurry black X inside of it. We know it doesn't sound super exciting. But it was a huge scientific discovery. That X in the middle of the photo was evidence of a twisted structure. It proved that the DNA molecule had a double helix shape, the twisted ladder shape we associate with DNA. Photo 51 rocked all the scientists who saw it. One said, the instant I saw the picture, my mouth fell open and my pulse began to race. And one archivist called it arguably the most important photo ever taken. By 1953, Rosalind was sure DNA had a double helix structure. She even wrote several articles and papers about it. But ever the pragmatic scientist, she wanted further proof. She wanted a physical model of DNA called a molecular model, built based on more research. She worked on smaller scale models, but never the larger one needed to prove her theory. But another scientific team at Cambridge, James Watson and Francis Crick, were inspired by Rosalind's work. Remember that quote about someone's jaw dropping when they saw Rosalind's photo? That was James Watson. Watson and Crick began building a molecular model of DNA showing how the double helix structure was built. Rosalind was unimpressed, saying, quote, it's very pretty, but how are they going to prove it? She still wanted more proof, so she continued her research. In April 1953, almost two years after Rosalind's photo, Watson and Crick published their model. <laughs> they only gave Rosalind a footnote in the article, acknowledging, quote, general knowledge, end quote, of Rosalind's work. They were credited with discovering DNA structure. But despite this, Rosalind continued her own research. She eventually published a paper on DNA's helix structure a year after Watson and Crick, and after she left King's College, began studying RNA and viruses, making important discoveries about both. In 1956, Rosalind noticed a bulge in her stomach. She was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and she was only 36 years old. She began treatment and continued to work. Her team wrote seven papers in 1956 and another six the next year. Rosalind died in 1958, two years after her diagnosis, and just one day before her exhibit of a virus model debuted at the Brussels World Fair. She continued her work till the very end. In 1962, Watson and Crick were awarded a Nobel Prize for their work on the double helix structure of DNA. It was four years after Rosalind's death. In fact, Rosalind's work contributed to not one, but two Nobels. Just before she died, she was working with a colleague on the molecular structure of viruses, and he received a Nobel Prize for the work in 1982. Even though her work did not get the credit it deserves... She is not forgotten. I learned so much in that story. It's really interesting, you know, the way our DNA is shaped. The the hel I was thinking about that double helix and what function that has. I'm actually staring at a crocheted blanket as I say that. <laughs> and now it's also making me think about our hyperbolic crochet adventure. Oh. 
and maybe like super advanced crocheting as I could crochet a double helix. Oh, that, that would be years. super advanced. <laughs> That's very cool. Did you have any other moments from Four Lost Cities that you remember? You know, one thing that I thought was really fascinating uh, about their description of the city in central Turkey was that the way that they formed the dwellings in that city, the door was essentially in the ceiling. Mm. And so there would be a ladder and everyone would climb up. And so then what we would think of as like sidewalks or the communal area was on everyone's roof. The way you got around that city rather than walking on the sidewalk like I would do in Los Angeles was that you went from roof to roof. And um, it's such an interesting thing when you think about like just because modern cities look a certain way and they seem to sort of all be sidewalk based, for example, (laughs) it doesn't mean that they have to be um, or that they were in the past. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely true. I don't remember that part about the book. That's really wild. Okay, we we just talked a lot about how I'm going to try to become less attached to things. But if, like me, you still like things, we actually have some great merch for this show. If you go to podswag.com slash periodic, you can find lots of things that have our faces on them. I'm literally wearing some of our merch right now. I am wearing an official merch sweatshirt. Yes, we have an excellent sweatshirt, a t-shirt, a tie-dye tote, a marble mug, and a sticker. And also, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Um, I had to explain to my mother how you do this. So you basically search our show, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. There's a little button that says write a review. Click on that and um, and and write us a review. We sure love it if you give us five stars while you're at it. This podcast is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.